Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message. I'm excited about next Shabbat also, Lord willing. A lot happens in a week, though, doesn't it? How many of you had a busy week this week? I asked that question during the membership class, and half of the hands went up. The other half weren't sure if they had a busy week, but uh, life can be very busy. But I'm thankful that the Lord is in the center. I hope He's in the center of your life. That's very important. You know, I come up here this morning with the premise that I want to present to you. It's a it's a common premise, but it has uncommon value and meaning. And that premise is, is this, that God has done, God is doing, and no, no doubt God will continue doing a good work among his people. So if you are among his people, if he's really your Lord, and you are one of his people, then God is at work in your life. And how many can relate to that? Has God been at work in your life lately? And I know if we, if we uh, went around the room and thought about it, discussed it, and we, we would find that there's some commonality between us. Sure, right now when we look at this world, there are difficult things happening, even terrible things happening in this world. You know the saying, the uh, words of Yeshua when he talked about war and rumors of war. And he talked about that sin would abound and that iniquity would, would abound and that the, the, the love of many would grow cold. I hope that's not happening in our lives. Rather than the love of God in our hearts growing cold, may the love of God become more fervent for us so that we are in contradistinction to the flow of the, the world around us because he is doing a good work in his people. And from my perspective over the years, I see that his work is very good. It is, can I say it? Tov meod. Can you say tov meod? It's very good what he does. And even as there are wars and rumors of war, there are nations rising against nation. Uh, it, it, one nation against the other. Missiles flying from one place to the other place and then back again and from all over. And, you know, when you think about it, there's some tough stuff happening. But again, my premise here this morning is that God is doing a good work among his people. And if you are his, he's doing a good work in your life. Now, we don't always readily grasp that, especially when we're going through a hard time or a difficult time. We can be consumed or caught up with what we're going through rather than with him who's leading us through it. And I'm so thankful for the Lord today. How many of you are thankful for the Lord today? I am thankful for the Lord. I appreciated uh, Cherry's song that we sang based on Yeshayahu, Isaiah chapter 53. That song that she's given to us that we can enjoy. You know, 
God is doing a good work among his people, as I've mentioned now for three times, my premise. But it's not as if he doesn't care about anyone else. He does. He cares about what's happening. He cares about the people of the world. He cares about the nations of the earth. He, he would bring the nations to himself. He would call individuals to come and to know him and to, to, to receive of him the good things that he has for them. And he cares so much for us. We know the, the proof is that he loved us so much that he sent his son, Yeshua. Now, I've been a believer a long time. and Some of you have been a believer longer than I have. But I've yet to get tired of that idea that God so loved us that he sent his son. I've yet to get tired of that. I'm not tired of that. I'm, I'm amazed by that. I'm enthralled by that idea that the heavenly father, the creator of the universe would even care about us is enthralling to me. It, 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 it takes me to another place and may it do that for you also to realize, and I, let me make this personal for you and me today, to realize that the creator of the universe actually cares about you as a person. And your life, what you're going through and what you're facing, he cares. He wants to lead you through that. He wants to help you through that. He wants to be there with you. And the proof is that he sent his son, Yeshua, to die for our sins. The good news message, the Bessarah message, he wants to enrich our life and to bless us. And he wants to bless us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. It was the apostle who had the parush, the Pharisee background. We know him as Saul of Tarsus or Paul the apostle who expressed this truth about spiritual blessings. He expressed it in this way. We read in the 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where he writes to them, and notice the first statement. Is it true for you? For you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Is that true for you? Do you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah personally in your life? He writes to the Corinthians, whom he spent considerable time with and was instrumental with the formation of that Messianic community. And he writes to them, for you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. And he continues, that even though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Unless we think Rapshua was only speaking about material things, actually there's a strong suggestion, a suggestion in Ephesians chapter 1 beginning with verse 3 of something different. Where there he cries out in the very beginning of this epistle to the Ephesians, he cries out and he says in a very Jewish way, I might add, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. We might say it this way, Baruch Adonai, <laughs> bless the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. And he continues and he writes to the Ephesians, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah. Continues, he chose us in the Messiah before the foundation of the world. He chose us to be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, God has blessed us richly. Do you feel richly blessed by the Lord? He has blessed us richly. 
Yet in that blessing, he calls us to do exactly what it says, to be holy and blameless before him in love. Love is an important word. <laughs> oh, I know there are songs, all, all we need is love, and all those that date me very uh, dramatically when I say that. <laughs> but love is a key here. It's love that motivates God. It's love that should be motivating us. And when I think about God's love, what a special kind of love is God's love. God's love is not fickle. It's not faulty. It's not faithless. You know what? It's not fake. It's not fruitless. It's not finagling. It's not frivolous. It's not forced. And it's not a flimsy love. God's love is something firm and sure. His pure love, his agapeo love, his agape love, as it's commonly called, his love was willingly exhibited to us through his son, Yeshua the Messiah, who is the risen Lord. And by the way, can I say this and it's a secret to some, they don't realize it, but this very Lord is coming back again, and it may be soon. Some don't realize that. I know, I know here in this group, we do realize that, because we've read the book, and we're reading the book, and we know what the book says. But do you realize there are multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people out in the world that have no idea that Yeshua is coming back again? In places in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, they don't know he's coming back again. But he is. He's coming back with great glory. And what great love he has for us. And let me say it again, what great love he has for you here this morning. He genuinely loves you. And that love, it's not like I said, a fickle, faulty, faithless, etc. kind of love. It is a true love proven by the nail-scarred wrists and hands and feet of him who loves us. First Yohanan, First John chapter 3, verse 16. Very good memory verse, by the way. It says this, for we have come to know love by this. This is how we know love. We have come to know love by this. Yeshua laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He laid down his life for us. You might say he's given us an example. We also need to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. How many know that can be challenging? <laughs> he took the challenge and he laid down his life for us. And yet, when you think about it, this 1 John 3.16, you know, I'm amazed that, I don't know if it was by design or not, but we all know John 3.16, don't we? Well, let me read it to you from perhaps a, a translation you're not familiar with, the complete Jewish Bible. John 3.16 in the complete Jewish Bible sounds just like the King James or the New King James or New American Standard until you get to the end. For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son, only and unique son. Sounds familiar. So that everyone who trusts, who believes in him, may have eternal life instead of being utterly destroyed. As I read that in this translation and came to those last two words, utterly destroyed, 
That says it a little, little bit more of this than shall not perish. But that instead of being utterly destroyed, that we might have eternal life as we put our trust into him. Friends, if you think, if you think you are able to negotiate, negotiate not only this life, but eternity according to your own merit, your own goodness, your own strength, your own righteousness, your own good intentions, your own cleverness, your own sense of humor, your own ability to finagle, your own talents, your own good looks, or whatever you want to put in the list, and I like lists. But those lists won't work. Think again if you think through those kind of things, you can negotiate eternity. You can't. We need the eternal love of God at work in our hearts. We all need, can I say it this way, we all need the Moshiach, the Savior. We need him. We need the one who saves us, whose very name, Yeshua, means save or salvation. And may I make this personal today? You need a Savior. You need a Savior. You cannot negotiate eternity on your own premise or in your own cleverness or your own good looks or your own wealth or your own this or your own that. You can't. But you can negotiate eternity through faith in Yeshua the Messiah and his shed blood that gives us life everlasting. Blessed be his name. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says this. Yeshua is totally able to, to deliver those who approach him, approach God through him. I like that. He's totally able. <laughs> if you think your case is too difficult for the Messiah, repent. It's not. You think your circumstance is too far beyond him? It's not. In fact, he's totally able to deliver you, to save you, to save you if you approach God through him, through his merit, through his shed blood, through his atoning work. Yeshua is totally able to deliver those who approach God through him since he is alive. Will you say the next word with me? Forever. For he is alive forever and thus forever able to intercede on their behalf. He's alive forever, which means he's forever there, a, a point of intercession, his shed blood availing for us for eternity. Do you think your own cleverness can negotiate the realm of eternity? Do you think your own success in life will, will be enough? Do you think that your own uh, wisdom, your own this or your own that will be able to pass up this? That he is alive forever and thus forever able to intercede on their behalf. Now, if we're to follow our Messiah then we too, we too must conduct ourselves as he did. Now, immediately when I think of that idea, conducting ourselves as he did, I think, whoa, that's quite a task. How many agree with that? Conducting yourself as he did, <laughs> that's quite a task. And it makes me realize all the more how much we need his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit at work in our life, because it's his Holy Spirit. It's 
His Holy Spirit that's transforming us and changing us from glory and glory and faith to faith so that we might walk increasingly close to Him. And I pray right now in your life that you're coming increasingly closer to the Lord and not putting a gap, a deepening or widening gap between you and your Savior. Now is not the time for that. In fact, it's never the time for that. (laughs) Now, tomorrow, yesterday, it's never the time for that. And as we think about him and the call to be like him, I'm referencing Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. And I know for many years I pondered the very first statement of Ephesians 5, found in verse 1. So imitate God as his dear children. Imitate God. Some of the great theologians over history within church history have written about the imitation of God. Trying to be like him. It says, so imitate God as his dear children. And then it continues, and almost as a qualifier, tells us what that means. So imitate God as his dear children. And then it says this, and this is a super challenging idea. And live a life of love, the alliteration of the three L's. Live a life of love. Will you say that with me? Live a life of love. So we're to imitate God as dear children, and we're to live a life of love. How many of you besides me here in this room find that to be a challenging call? I do. To live a life of love. And then it says this, just as also the Messiah loved us, indeed on our behalf gave himself up as an offering, as a slaughtered sacrifice to God with a pleasing fragrance. Love was among the main goals of Paul's teachings. You might think, well, there's so much he he, he, he spoke about. He spoke about the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. He spoke about many different things. But he he says this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. He says, now the goal, the purpose of this command is what? Is love. Is what? It's love from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a genuine faith. He writes to Timothy, whom he's sharing some of his deepest thoughts with. And and can we say it this way, ministerial secrets, if we could say it that way, using our terminology. Now, the goal, the purpose of this command is love from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a genuine faith. And then, sadly, there's verse 6. Some, having missed the mark, have turned away to fruitless discussion. (laughs) Oh, I wonder, did they have Facebook in the first century? Does anybody know? Somebody let me know if they had Facebook in the first century, the apostolic page of Facebook, apostolic friends page or whatever. And some have missed the mark, have turned away the fruitless discussion. And then verse 7 gets even more indicting in some quarters, wanting to be teachings of teachers of Torah, And then he says this, and he's the one guy that could say this, being the Pharisee of Pharisees as to the Torah blameless, says wanting to be teachers of Torah, even though they do not understand what they keep saying or what they so dogmatically assert. All that came from the very first statement in verse 5. Now the goal, the purpose of this command is what? Is love. It's love. 
It's love from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a genuine faith. There's the goal. There's a goal for this congregation. There's a goal for every congregation of believers. Love from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a genuine faith. And as you can probably quote right right back to me, Yeshua said, by this shall all men know you are my Talmudim. What's it say? If you have love one for another. Now, the way God's love should be exhibited in our lives is wonderfully described much in the Brit Hadashah in the New Covenant. It's wonderfully described, in, for example, in the well-known words of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I know over the years, as I've officiated at weddings, that it used to be very common to have 1 Corinthians 13 read at the wedding. We won't do that today, but let, let's get to the very heart of what it says, 1 Corinthians 13, with this description of love and the characteristics of love. It says, love is patient, and right there we lose half the crowd. <laughs> love is patient. <laughs> I'm not even looking towards my wife right now. I'm looking somewhere else. <laughs> We lost some on that one, but I don't know. Maybe we'll get them back with the next one. Love is kind. Do we get some back with that one? We might lose a few on that one, too. How many think we might use, lose a few on the kind part of this? And it does not envy. It does not brag. It is not puffed up. It does not behave inappropriately. It does not seek its own way. It is not provoked. It keeps no account of wrong. Well, if we didn't lose y'all before that, this may be it. Keeps no account of wrong. It continues in verse 6. It does not rejoice over injustice, but does what? Rejoices in the truth. Do you rejoice in the truth today? You see, these ideas that Rob Shiloh wrote, we, we, I know he was a Torah scholar, but he said the goal, the purpose of his teaching, his instructions, his commands was what? Love from a pure heart, genuine faith clear conscience and some hearing these words that I just read from the section of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 they may be thinking sure, sure God's love is clearly it clearly shines forth when we read the new covenant where we learn about Yeshua and we see his supreme example that I've been talking about and talk about every Shabbat here Yeshua's supreme example, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the, the Lamb of God who willingly lays down his life for his people. There's the supreme example. It's so obvious. It's so revealed in the new covenant. It was proclaimed first to the Jewish people of the first century in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel. It's all so obvious. But then there's this nagging question. But how does that fit into the biblical history of the nation of Israel, this idea of the love? Does that really fit into Israel's history? It's surprising to some to realize that the first usage of the word love is not in the New Testament. It's not even in the prophets. It's all the way back in the Torah and the book of Devarim. Where God says, he, I love you, I love you, I love you, he tells Israel. Is God's love revealed 
in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew portion of the Bible, the larger two-thirds section, the answer is a resounding yes and yes. His love is revealed. And in fact, there's a tremendous consistency with the principles we read in the New Covenant with also the principles in the Tanakh and the Hebrew Scriptures. These two are not on different pages, so to say. They're not in two different places. They're actually melded together. The Scripture speaks with one voice from Genesis to Revelation. The Scripture upholds the principles of God from Genesis to Revelation. Now, actually, as history goes on, more and more light is given, more and more understanding. But some of the most difficult premises that we read in the New Covenant, for example, the idea, and I had you say it and see it, was the idea of being utterly destroyed. That's a tough thing, especially in a society like ours. But God had some pretty tough things to say, quite tough to say to Israel as he dealt with Israel. For example, in Yehezkiel, Ezekiel chapter 18, he gives this divine question through Ezekiel. And here God is speaking, and this is what he is saying through Yehezkiel, through Ezekiel. He said, do I take any pleasure at all in having the wicked person die? Notice right away he distinguished wicked from non-wicked. And notice also he mentions death. Do I take any pleasure at all in having the wicked person die? Asks Adonai Elohim. And then there's this statement. Wouldn't I prefer that he turn from his ways and live and death and life are set up together just like they are in the Torah, just as they are with Yeshua in him is life. Yeshua is the way, the truth, and the life. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do I take any pleasure at all in having the wicked person die? Asks Adonai Elohim. Wouldn't I prefer that that person turn from his ways and live? Of course, the answer is obvious. Yes, he would prefer. He doesn't desire for any to perish, as the new covenant says, but for all to come to the knowledge of the truth. That means that every person you see, everybody you encounter in your life, he wants all of us to repent from our sins and turn to him and know true life through Messiah Yeshua. But Ezekiel, there's too many passages to cover, but let me suggest another one. You think being a prophet was easy? <laughs> Try delivering words like these, like the one in Ezekiel 18.23, or these in Ezekiel chapter 33, beginning with verse 10. He says, therefore you, O son of man, Ben-Adam, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? And God says, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then it gets, I think, very dramatic. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Would you agree with me? That's a pretty stark term there. That's a stark quotation. Ezekiel quoting what God tells him to say. 
in this stark terms of life and death, which we also see in the New Covenant. They are consistent throughout the Bible. And that puts us in a very precarious place as believers because we realize that around us, and I know if I ask you to raise your hand, how many of you have unbelievers filtering around your life or flitting around your life and being part of your life? Well, most of us would raise our hands. And they're in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the Lord's judgment of, of, of decision, so to say. God wants them to repent and to come to know his real life, his life, and that life is in Messiah Yeshua. But society, as we spoke about as I began this message today, society is, is, is becoming utterly sinful. Whether seen in the writings of Paul or in the writings of the prophets, these issues, these stark issues, do go through all of Scripture. You see them in Paul. You see them in Yeshua's terms when he speaks. You see him in, in what he says. You see him in the, the proclamation of the good news. Yet one thing is quite different when we compare the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, with the New Covenant. There's something very different. And I'm just going to summarize it with one word, Yeshua. Very different. Sure, they dovetail together, but there's difference. In the Tanakh, when you read through the Scripture, Yeshua is kind of hidden He's veiled. Now, I know that there are some, and I, I have friends that are in this situation, they're not believers, and they read the Scripture, say the Scripture doesn't speak to them at all. Maybe you come from that place in your life where Scripture didn't really have much meaning to you. By the way, that doesn't mean that the Scripture doesn't speak. It means that the Scripture to them, at least from their point of view, is not speaking to them, but the Scripture is speaking. <laughs> The veil needs to be removed. The stony heart needs to go. The openness to God must come in its place. Yeshua is hidden. He's veiled. But he's fully shown forth in the new covenant in a glorious way. He's there. He's actually there in places like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11. And we can go on and on. Micah chapter 5. He's there. There, there, there are hints of him. There are glimpses of him. There are messianic prophecies about him. And there he is. When you piece them together, if you're willing to do that and look at these messianic prophecies and look at Israel's history, look at the historical text, see some of the types of Yeshua that come forward, you realize he's there, but he's kind of veiled. But when the exact fullness of time came, there he was in his glory. In, in a way that it took a very perceptive person to actually get it. In, there's one guy, his name is Shimon in Hebrew or Simeon. Let me read what happened with him in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 25. You know what? He got it. He saw Messiah revealed. He knew he'd been, been spoken of in the Scripture, and there he sees him. It says, there was in Jerusalem, Jerusalem a man named Shimon. This man was a Sadiq. He was a righteous man. He was a Sadiq. He was devout. And then it says this, he waited eagerly for God to comfort Israel, and the Ruach HaKodesh was upon him. Verse 26. It had been revealed to Shimon 
by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah of Adonai. And it says he was waiting eagerly. He wanted the comfort of Israel. He knew the comfort was in the Messiah. Prompted by the Spirit, Shimon went into the Beit HaMikdash, the courts of the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Yeshua to do for him what the Torah required, <laughs> and what a scene this had to be, Yeshua took Yeshua in his arms. He made a bracha. He gave thanks to God. And he said, now, Adonai, according to your word, your servant is as peace as you let him go. For I have seen with my own eyes your Yeshua, salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light that will bring revelation to the goyim, to the nations, and glory to your people, Israel. But he wasn't the only one, Simeon, Shimon. There's a very intriguing one that happens in the same chapter she's mentioned in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 37. We know her in Hebrew as Hana, Anna. And it says, in describing her in Luke 2, verse 37, it says, And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. And friends, at that time, that was very old. 84 was very old. People died much younger. Historically, we know that to be true. But that was a very old person. And this woman, she was a widow of about 84 years, and it says, who did not depart from the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. And you know what else she did? She served God with fastings and prayers night and day. There's her. There's Anna. And coming at the right exact moment, coming in that instant, she did the same thing Simeon did. She said a bracha. She gave thanks to the Lord. And then she spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She recognized the Messiah. And again, I would make this special note about her. As with the situation after the resurrection, the Lord has a woman declaring to all around her, as it says, the redemption in Jerusalem of the Messiah. He uses a woman in the temple, one of the very first people to proclaim, this is the Lord's Messiah. This baby is the Lord's Messiah. Even as he used women in the very beginning to uncover the fact and discover it, I should say, that Yeshua had risen from the dead, that the tomb was empty. In fact, he used the women in the resurrection, and the men, Peter, etc., didn't really believe it. <laughs> go, go figure that one out, but that's what happened. And Simeon that we just spoke of, and Anna, they looked beyond the issues of their life. Did this 84-year-old widow have issues in her life? How many of you think this 84-year-old widow had issues in her life? Please raise your hand. She did. <laughs> Back then, there wasn't Social Security or Medicare or anything like that. Widows became some of the most vulnerable in the society. And thank God that God had, in his mercy and his great compassion, had placed within the community of Israel his good Torah, his good commands concerning the widows. 
Do you think Simeon had some issues? He's waiting for the consolation. And each day that goes by, he doesn't seem to see the fulfillment. But then there is that fulfillment. And they, these two, Anna and Simeon, are pointed down in Luke chapter 2 as examples to us, both a man and a woman. These two look beyond their own personal difficulties in life. And I assure you they had them their own personal difficulties in life, their own personal difficulties of living in their generation, just like we have difficulties in our generation. They look past, uh, can I say it this way, the turmoil of the politics of their day being lorded over by Romans, etc. They look past all that, and what did they see? They look past, and you know who they saw? Yeshua the Messiah. Who must we see in our generation? Yeshua the Messiah. There's where we look. Those who look to him will never be disappointed. I want to leave you with two passages of Scripture. On this same keel, there's many things to say about this. But these two passages of Scripture seem to have been written for the early Messianic Jews. They were in the book of Hebrews which historians tell us this was, this was written for Messianic Jews, Jewish believers in Yeshua. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we read this. But we do see Yeshua. Will you say that with me? But we do see Yeshua. Let's try that again. But we do see Yeshua. Now, that's talking about a collective I'd like us to say the same words again, but instead of the we part, let's put I. Can you do that with me? But I do see Yeshua. Let's try that again. But I do see Yeshua. Is that true in your life? The generation around you, the politics floating all around you, the wars and rumors of war, all the stuff that's happening around, can you see Yeshua through it all? That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to in this generation, to not get caught up in the things of this world, but be caught up in him who's coming to rule this earth. And his coming may be at any time. We don't know. It continues in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see Yeshua, who indeed was made a little while lower than the angels. And there's Simeon and Anna praising and thanking God that that's the case. Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by God's grace he might taste death for all humanity. The message that we proclaim when we proclaim Yeshua is for all peoples. Its primary focus was to the Jewish people, but it's for all people. And there's a second passage, and I'll leave you with this one. It's also from the book of Messianic Jews. And you can see thematically these two passages from Messianic Jews, and there are several in between that I'm not mentioning, are linked together thematically. In Hebrews chapter 12... Beginning with verse 1, it says, So then, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us too put aside every impediment, that is, the sin which easily hampers our forward movement, and let's keep running with endurance in the contest set before us. And again, here's the theme 
Notice verse 2. Looking away, looking towards, looking to, looking away to the initiator and completer of that trusting. Who is it? It's Yeshua. Who, in exchange for obtaining the joy set before him, he endured execution on a stake as a criminal, scorning the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Blessed be his name. And this Messiah is returning to this earth. Will you please stand with me as we conclude our service today? If you leave here today and you don't realize how much the Lord loves you, please don't leave until you get that down. And secondarily, if you leave here today and you don't realize that, you need to proclaim to others around you the Besara, the good news of our Messiah. Please work that through so that you become a mouthpiece if you're not a spokesperson. Some of the difficult principles of scriptures need to also be said to the world around us such as the wages of sin is death. Don't forget the second part. But the gift of God is eternal life through Yeshua the Lord. Will you bow your head? As I, I want to close with this benediction. I'm going to read it from the book of Hebrews chapter 13. After I have finished with this, you are free to go. Uh, thank you for those who uh, bring food for the Oneg and enjoy that. If you would like special prayer, please come up and be with our prayer team. And, and I thank the seagulls for doing that today. But here's the benediction from the end of uh, the book of Hebrews. Notice what he says. Beginning with Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of Shalom who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of an everlasting company, our Lord Yeshua. Make you complete in every good thing to do his will, accomplishing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Messiah Yeshua. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please say Shabbat Shalom to your neighbor. Lord bless you. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.